So, my name is Derek Rose. I'm aware that there are probably a good amount of the audience who is not familiar with myself or my work, and that is always one of my favorite talks. Because, you know, it's cool to talk to friends and people who already know who you are, and you already know, like, hey, we agree on things, we're on the same page. That's fun. But for me, it's also fun to start a new conversation, to learn from you guys, see where we can line up. Uh, so I'm going to give you a little bit of background since some of you are new. I'm going to rush through the background so we can get into the important stuff. So before we do that, as has been mentioned, we're touring the country right now. We just started on Thursday night in Austin, Texas, then we were in Dallas. I want to say this is the most people we've had at any other stop so far, so thank you guys. Yay! We had, I found it earlier, there's, a, there's at least 90 people, including the children, because those young minds, I probably care about more reaching them more than I care about reaching the adults. <laughs> Uh, we have 90 plus people here today, so thank you guys. We have 80 plus in Dallas and 60 plus in Austin, and it's not a competition, but that's cool. People are ready to hear ideas, right? Yesterday we had, or on uh, Friday we had a lady in her middle 80s and a young young dude that was 19 years old. So just to kind of give you a range of backgrounds and people and demographics, and I think that's really important because. The whole goal of this tour, the name, the activation tour, isn't just a marketing gimmick or a cool word. We're really hoping that as we come into these different communities, some like your communities here are very established already. A lot of y'all seem to have networks. I know many of y'all have support groups, maybe through church or just through different community means. And that is something that a lot of other places are, already, are lacking. They're, they're at the kind of beginning. They're just now like, we need to get our, our crap together. We need to start growing food. We need to... You know, have strong relationships outside of the government. So I feel like everybody around here is probably ahead of the game a little bit. So congratulations on that. But we're going around the country. We're going to visit 28 cities over the next two months. 25 left after today. And we're going to be talking. We're going to be sharing meditation. I'll tell you why we do that meditation and that sort of that prayer in just a moment. We're going to be doing meditation. I'm going to be giving talks. But also, every city that we visit, we're trying to contribute and give back in some way. Um, because your community is so put together here, we, we really there's not a lot of work to do. I mean, there's still more work to do, of course. But in these other cities we're visiting, sometimes we're feeding the homeless. We're doing park cleanups, beach cleanups. Um, we have a uh, what have we got? Uh, there's going to be a foraging tour in another city. There's going to be one here as well. And I'm still down for the foraging, by the way. Let's do that later. Um, we're we're just getting back in some way. Sometimes in Austin, we were out in the streets of downtown with flyers and signs about vaccine passports saying, "Hey, we're not going to accept them. We're not here to support those mandates." Anybody here to support a vaccine mandate? The exit is right now. <laughs> no, but I do want to say before I go any further, uh, can I get the unvaccinated to the left here and the vaccinated to the right? Here we go. Thank you guys. I'm just joking. Just joking. Nobody moved, by the way. So that's good. Um. So we're traveling the country, and we're going to be volunteering everywhere we go, doing community garden work, helping the homeless population, cleaning up parks, cleaning up beaches. We're doing meditations, and I'm giving this presentation. This presentation today is called, This is What We're Facing, and This is What We Can Do. So that's what we're going to get into today. That's what we're going to be traveling the country for the next two months. And a couple folks have mentioned that I toured, I did this three years ago, in 2018 and in 2017. In 2018, for some reason, me and Miriam got the bright idea to tour the country with 54 cities. And that was a beautifully exhausting, stressful time. But it was wonderful. And I got to meet some of the people here tonight on that tour. We also did it in 2017. At that time, in 2017 and 2018, the ideas that I'm going to be talking about, which are almost identical to what I was talking about back then, were I don't think people were ready for them yet. 
I think that people understand the need for community and the value in that. But things were yeah, things were crazy three years ago, but not COVID-19 before crazy, right? And now all of a sudden in the last year, a lot of the ideas and the things we're going to talk about, including the Freedom Cell Network, have just exploded exponentially. People around the world, like I said, young and old, from India to Australia to the United States to Mexico, are ready to get organized and are very concerned about the steps that their governments are taking, that corporations are taking with these governments, what it means for the youngest generations, and how we can do something about it. So that's why I'm here. We decided, you know what, we got two months on our schedule. Um, young got the energy, the time, and thankfully we have community support. We were able to uh, get a, a sponsorship to help us pay with some of the costs. Let's do it. Let's travel the country and talk to people about this. Let's see what we can do, right? It's, it feels like the most important time ever. To do this. So that's what we're doing here today. As I said, the talk is called This is What We're Facing and This is What We Can Do. Now, I want to give you a brief background. I'm 36 years old. I've been an activist, freelance investigative journalist since 2010. I'm from Houston, Texas originally. As Miriam mentioned, we live in Mexico. Um, but we come back often to Texas. And I started waking up at the end of 2009, 2010, questioning the government in general, questioning things like 9-11, questioning things like Big Pharma, questioning you know, all the things that many of us here have concerns about, let's say. And that rapidly changed my life, and pretty much I just couldn't look back. At that time, I had been managing a restaurant. My uh, The owner of the restaurant wanted me to franchise it and kind of turn it into this big thing for him. And when I started to have this experience of waking up, it just literally felt like I it felt like I've been asleep my entire life. I think that's why we say awake, because that's the feeling you get. It's like, what the heck have I been doing? Like I was 24 at the time, and and it, the job didn't matter anymore. I, I didn't. I just. I literally had to figure out how to survive because from that day forward, I was committed to researching. I was committed to finding solutions. It felt like it's not enough to know the problems. I need to figure out what I can do about this. How can I help other people? And then I went to my friends and my family and said, hey, have you guys heard about this? Do you know what the Federal Reserve is? Have you heard about this thing or that thing? And I found the one friend who didn't think I was crazy. And we started an activist group called Houston Freedom. And from 2010 to 2018, we were very active in the city. I'll say that we made Houston the only city in the country to kick the TSA off the buses because they tried to bring the TSA to the bus line. And we were successfully able to put them out of town. Thank you. That's definitely one of my you know, fire moments, I think, of, of us organizing as a community. We basically just, hey, they announced this program. If you ride the bus in the city, your bags can now be randomly searched. They're going to bring drug-sifting dogs. They can ask you for an ID anytime they want. And it was just like, whoa, this is, this is crazy. And so we quickly organized. We got some lawyers together. We didn't ask the government for permission. We showed up at the Metro bus company's board meeting with 200 people until they shut the program down. And that was a beautiful thing. That, that's kind of, I think, where a lot of people started to hear about my work and the work of Houston Freethinkers. Because of that, I was on InfoWars and Alex Jones show a couple times back in 2011, 2012. And so I just committed my life to this. And along the way, I started realizing, you know what? I like journalism. I like putting cameras in politicians' faces and watching them run or squirm. I like investigating and asking questions that nobody else will. And I was... You know, because of my persistence, I have a radio show in Houston now, on 90.1 FM in Houston, it's called Freethinker Radio. I've produced about a dozen documentaries, many documentaries, one's called The 5G Trojan Horse, about 5G, another on the reality of child trafficking. Um, 
that I did a couple years ago, and just numerous documentary projects. I've written these books here. One of the books, How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State, is what we're going to be focused on today. You can download it for free at theconsciousresistance.com slash howto. All my books are downloadable for free. And along that way, I started this, this idea after creating the Freethinkers. I wanted to do something different with journalism. I wanted to not, you know, I want to follow the mainstream, of course, but I wanted to be able to talk about, if I wanted to talk about meditation or prayer, then I wanted to be able to talk about it. If I wanted to ask, are UFOs real, then I wanted to do it. If I wanted to ask why the government is committing so many crimes against its own people, I wanted to do that. I wanted to do real journalism my way in an honest way, and that evolved to be the project that I call the Conscious Resistance Network. And I started that in 2013. Now I want to kind of connect it to what Miriam was just doing a moment ago, because I said I started to wake up in 2009, but the truth is that I actually woke up before then, but in a very different way. In 2005, I was 20 years old, and I got addicted to crystal meth. And I have been, I've been depressed most of my life. Most of my early years were spent visiting my father in prison for his drug addiction. And, you know, it was a familial thing. Three generations of pros men with drug addictions, mother's side, alcohol problems. And it was just something that was very common for me growing up. And because of that situation, visiting my father in prison, him making promises and not keeping them, you know, it... I was just a super depressed kid. You know, I started cutting myself when I was a teenager. I just started, you know, at the end of, I was really smart. I graduated high school early and did all those things, but nobody knew that about me. They, I was the crazy kid at school who was getting in fights because I was just, I was so messed up inside. And I just had all this stuff I didn't know how to deal with. And then when I graduated early, I graduated early from high school. My friends were still in school. I went right into local community college, um, but I started drinking. And that was when I was 18. And that drinking turned into being the drunk at the party, then that turned into taking these pills, and that turned into this thing, and then one day, January 2005, I tried crystal meth. And by November 2005, I was in prison. And it, I mean, I really just hit rock bottom. That's just, you know, let's keep it short and simple. I hit, I hit rock bottom, I ended up losing you know, relationships, trust of family and friends, end up living in a crack house, and just, you know, really in tough place, but that summer of 2005, I realized I'm not happy. This is not what I want to do. This is, I don't want to go down the same path. There was still a piece of me that knew this wasn't what I was supposed to do. Part of me was so lost that it felt like, oh, the drugs, they're making me happy. That's what I've been looking for. That's where happiness is, right? Anybody who's ever been down that road, you recognize after a bit, it doesn't matter how much substances you put in your body, that's not where you'll find your happiness, at least not long-term real happiness. And so here I was, 20 years old, Living in a crack house in Houston, 2005, and knowing, like, I gotta get out of here. I gotta get out of here. And thankfully, the people who were around me, who were also addicts, I was just, you know, when, you, when you're in that world, those are the people you hang out with. You know, you don't go hang out with your family and friends when you're on drugs all the time. You hang out with other people who do drugs all the time. And I had to realize, these people don't care about me. I really needed somebody to be there for me. I was depressed, I was sad, I just needed somebody to talk to, and it took me a while to realize, like, wow, these people don't really care about me. And so I told them, I'm really trying to quit. Please don't offer me anything. Like, I really, I need to quit. And thankfully, they respected that. You know, I didn't have anybody try to push anything on me after that. But I sat there in this house, and I pretty much just counted day by day. And I'll say, this is the truth of the matter. Feel how you like about it. But cannabis helped me quit that. Without the help of cannabis, I wouldn't have been able to get off that other extremely intense drug that screwed up my anxiety, made me really jittery and shaky and all this stuff. And it was day one. Day two, and I'm just kind of sitting in the corner of the room watching it all. And just by day four, day five, it's like, what the heck am I doing here? How did I end up here? 
Day seven, I got up. My car had been outside the whole time. I had gas in the car. I just I didn't have the strength to go anywhere, and I burned all my bridges. I, I you know, so I had to tuck my tail between my legs and go back to my parents and say, look, I know I screwed up. I know you're mad at me, but I'm tired of going to sleep, people, hearing people smoke crack. Can I please come home? Can I like whatever it takes? Let me let me do this, right? So they let me come back, and you know, I was in that world for so long that as I was getting sober, I, I, I never looked back with meth, and you know, I put that on my own. Thankful for that. And, but I was still in that world, and that was the way I knew how to make money. And so it was just one of these cases, like after a couple months of me being sober, it's like, I need some money, I can't get a job. Like at the moment, I was just still having trouble, but I was sober at least off that stuff. But I knew if I went and bought some, I could go sell it real quick and make some money. And it's just one of those kind of stereotypical cases. One more deal, and that's the one you get busted. You got pulled over, you know, I had drugs in the car, and I remember sitting in the back of the cop car, looking at my car and being like, wow, I don't know what's about to happen, but I know I'm probably not going to see that car again. And, you know, so I ended up going, I ended up getting a felony, being sent to prison for 11 months, and then it just, it was a cycle for a couple of years. So I got out of prison, which I went in 2005, I got out for the final time, October 2008. Does anybody remember what was going on in October 2008? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, it's about, about, about a month before Obama got elected. And I was coming out into this, you know, world with fresh eyes, like because I went to prison, not because of the prison system, because in case anybody needs to hear it, those places are horrible institutions that do not rehabilitate people. The only reason I'm sitting here today is because I made a conscious choice to do something different. I met, I met so many brilliant people, brilliant, good, sharp, intelligent people in prison who are locked up in there for Stupid things, insane things, non-violent crimes, non-offensive crimes. Some people who have the best intentions and they get sucked into that system. And when you come out, I can say this with experience. I'm blessed that I've created this path for me and that God has given me this path that I don't have to worry about the fact that I have a felony. But if I was to go back into that normie, normal world, all of a sudden I'm judged again. Oh, you're a felon, you can't rent here. Oh, we can't give you a job here, you can't do these things. But I've never had anybody ask me, before I write articles for them or do investigations for them, do you have a felony? Because it doesn't matter in the world that I live in. And so I just want to kind of throw that out there. That it's There's a lot of people who are struggling because society puts that stigma on them. And so I got out of prison as a felon, and I had to figure that out. Okay, how am I going to find a job now? How am I going to you know, get, a, you know, get a house and all these things? But it was in that space, in prison, when I had the realization that I'm headed down the same path as my father, I said, like, I, visit, I visited him my whole life in prison, and it was just it was like a real kick in the chest. Like, no, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. So I committed myself to doing something different. I started praying. I started meditating every day. That's why we incorporate meditation, because that was the first opportunity that I think, not only was I getting sober off these drugs I've been on, but I was able to just <sighs> slow down. Because one benefit of being locked up is you have nowhere to go, you have nowhere to hide from yourself. Some people still do it, they still, you know, they connect with other people and they plan what they're gonna do when they get out. But I just chose to start writing, start journaling, start getting to like really know what my where my trauma was coming from, you know, from my relationship to my father. And so I started doing that inner work and by the time I got out in two thousand eight, it felt like I was a completely new person. I, it felt like I was just born for the first time that I was coming outside and I was looking at the you know the sunset and the clouds and it was like, wow, this is just I was able to enjoy life and for the first time say I love myself. I think I'm a pretty good person. You know, that took a long time to be able to say that out loud. And so the reason I share all that with you guys before we get into the real message for today is because I know some of you don't know my background. And that happened November 2005 to 2008. And then I ended up getting a job. 
I start doing the normal thing. In 2009, I watched Alex Jones' documentary. I read this book. I heard Ron Paul speak at U of H. And my whole life was never the same. And here I am today. And so I bring that up to say, that's why my website, this movement, if you will, what I talk about holistic activism, the conscious resistance, I say that because because of my experiences, you know, I woke up spiritually first. I had to have that like deep spiritual experience first before I knew anything about what the government was up to. Then later that came, and for the first couple of years of my my activist life, I, I was living a, a dual life. I had my activist friends over here, and we'd go do end the Fed rallies and marches or protests or whatever. And then I have my my prayer, meditation, spiritual friends over here, and it felt like it was always two different worlds. Because I'd be out here on the streets with my friends, and we're holding signs, and we're chanting, and I'd say, hey, you guys, you want to go to a prayer circle, meditation circle later? And they'd, they'd look at me like I was crazy. What are you talking about, man? We're just here to protest. You know, it was just this, it wasn't, it wasn't what they were into, right? And also, a lot of the people I was meeting at that time were, I think, more atheist, or I don't know what it was. They just weren't interested, let's say. Then I would be at my spiritual circles. And I would say, have you heard about this new bill that they're trying to pass? Have you heard about this new police violence or whatever the issue was that I was concerned about? And they'd say, don't talk about it. You're going to manifest it. <laughs> don't pay the violence. And it was like, okay, let's just put our heads in the sand, right? So for a while, I had two different worlds. All right, I won't talk about my spiritual interests to my activist friends, and I won't talk about my political interests to my spiritual friends. And then in 2013, I just had one of those nights. I'm sure some of you have had these. You know, you're up late watching YouTube videos way too late. You can't sleep. And I, this phrase just came to me, the conscious resistance. And I realized that I could no longer live these two lives. That to me, the struggle and the effort that I think many of you here are after, even if our, our end goal looks a little different, I think ultimately we're all at, who's here? Who wants a, a more free, better you know, a, a, a just world for these kids and for ourselves. Anybody here interested? Yeah. Right, so now if we went around the room and said, well, what does that look like to you? We'd get a lot of different answers. And that's okay, though. But we recognize we're all after that same goal. And as long as we don't initiate force or violence or harm on each other, then we can agree to disagree. We can have healthy dialogue. You know, that's fine. And I love that. I love being around people who I don't agree with and who I can still sit there and be an adult with. Because too many people, I think, are just... Big children who don't know how to communicate in a healthy way, unfortunately, and that's caused a lot of problems. So we're all after a free world. And for me, the struggle for a more free world, it's not going to come from only confronting the systems of power, you know, Joe Biden or the local governor or the local mayor or whatever it may be. It's going to come from the combination of doing that inner work that I was talking about that I had to do when I was in prison. And that looks different for everybody. I don't care how big and manly of a man you are, everybody got everybody has doubts, fears, and insecurities that we all hold on to, and they all express themselves in different ways. They look different in different ways. Some things that, you know, some people say they have trouble speaking and they, you know, they get a little nervous when they come up here. That doesn't bother some people, right? We all have different things that might hit us and affect us in different ways. And those doubts, fears, and insecurities can be paralyzing. They can also be ways that people can manipulate you, the state can manipulate you. Because really, you have to recognize that what we're seeing with COVID-1984, I tend to t try to have compassion to the other people who are supporting this agenda. Because a lot of them aren't like cheering on, like, yeah, we're all going to be slaves. <laughs> their, their compassion is being played on. They think they're being compassionate. A lot of them truly believe that they are doing what is best for other people. And that's a good thing, but it's being manipulated. And so that's what I'm saying. Like Our doubts, fears, insecurities, our idiosyncrasies, they can be manipulated by other people. So it's important for us to know 
where we are right here. Because if you would come to me and talk about some of the things we're going to talk about tonight, when I was in the midst of my depression and my drug use, you know, I would have heard you and said, wow, the government's doing that? Holy crap. But I was too busy being sad and depressed and addicted to drugs. So I wouldn't have been able to do anything about it. My point with saying that is there's a lot of good people that we know in our families, in our networks, who might care about these things, who might join us in this beautiful, wonderful fight, if they could just get over their own little thing. Some people, they're, you know, I have family members, six days a week they're working out of town to pay for the bills for the three kids and the wife, and they come home for the one day, less than 24 hours, they pack up and they leave again. Where do they find the time to come to something like this? Where do they find the time to go to community? They feel trapped, they feel like there's no way out, right? There's so many people who are dealing with different situations. So I really do believe that we have to work on our individual internal trauma, what I like to call the internal tyrant, because sometimes this tyrant can be worse than anybody out there. Work on that internal tyrant, as well as continuing to expose the physical manifestations of power. So to me, the two of those things together are what I call the conscious resistance. And that is why we try to incorporate meditation and just, you know, even if you don't like the word meditation, if that's not your thing, sit here and pray. Pray with the Creator and just find that quiet space. That's what it's really about. So that hopefully the ideas that we're about to go over have a little more impact. I'm just planting seeds tonight, going up there. And I'll, I'll try to water them throughout the night too, and we'll see what they turn into. So let's talk about what we're up against. Oh man, it's been an interesting year now. So starting in March 2020, we were told there was a global pandemic. Some countries started immediately locking down in the sense of no exit or entry into the country. In the worst cases, in Italy and Australia, people are not allowed to leave their own homes. Curfews, cops in the grocery stores checking your basket to make sure you only have essential items. In the United States of America, at least a couple examples that I remember that made the news, who knows how many other ones did make the news, people being placed with ankle monitors on their feet in the United States of America, Kansas, to make sure they quarantine. Um, quarantine hotels in Canada, quarantine hotels in different parts of the world, forcibly quarantine people. And look, like I said, I've been to prison. I saw pictures of some of the meals they're feeding people out there. They're worse than prison meals. You know, in prison, at least you get a couple of different options, right? This was like, I don't know, it looked just like throwaway food, the ones I saw in Canada. Quarantine hotels, uh, calls for the new normal that includes the idea that people like us who want medical freedom, health freedom, bodily autonomy, my body, my choice, right? Uh, who want those things are the enemy, are the problem, or at the very least should be pushed to the fringes of society and, and not treated like a respectable, intelligent person. Censoring of alternative views who ask questions about these. Censoring of anybody who prepares or presents an alternative to the shots. You know, my YouTube channel was deleted last October 2020. And I've had that channel since 2010 or something, and you know, been growing and following all that stuff. And yeah, that sucks. But the, the thing that really hit me about that is just understanding what that really means. The first video I got deleted off YouTube last year, the first strike I had, was in, Miriam introduced me to this doctor. His name is Dr. Chen. He's a Chinese doctor. He's from China, but he works in the U.S. and China. And he had been doing research on vitamin C. He's been treating people for years with intravenous high-dose vitamin C. Which, in the United States, we're told, don't do that, you're going to die, it's horrible for you. But he's got plenty of research and data showing, like, look, we're treating people with it. And this is before COVID. But then COVID hits, and so in China, they start treating some of the patients over there with intravenous high-dose vitamin C, which they're doing it through an IV fluid, 
you know, way more than you're told is is you know, safe because your body really can't handle more than we're told. And same thing, people recovering within 24 hours. So he starts he starts his own YouTube channel. This is not a conspiracy theorist or you know anything like that. This is just a doctor, medical doctor, creating a YouTube channel and a real small channel. Nobody was paying attention to it. But I did an interview with him. He said, please explain to me. We're we're having this global pandemic. It was March, April. You know, how how can I help people navigate this? You say vitamin C will help. Tell me all about it. So we did a 30, 45 minute interview breaking down how this can help and him giving some advice. That was the first strike I got, first video deleted off YouTube. The reason? Because it doesn't coincide with World Health Organization policy. So the World Health Organization, which as I'm sure you guys know is funded by the Gates Foundation, the majority and others, uh, doesn't believe that you should know that vitamin C is an alternative to the shot. So those are just some examples. I could go on and on, but I know you guys have seen it. People, probably some of your favorite content creators being deleted, censored, you know, and it's not just that, right? We could sit here and say, well, they're private companies, but I don't think that argument holds up because if you look into the origin of Facebook, YouTube, and Google, they come from the intelligence community, Silicon Valley. I encourage you to look into that more. So next time somebody says they're a private company, I don't know if we can really say that if you're taking money from the government to make to get you as big as, as you are and you're taking government technology. But anyways, this censorship is only one part of the bigger the bigger piece of the puzzle. And they actually started to give this this thing a name, this agenda a name. You guys have probably heard of it. The Great Reset, or maybe you've been familiar before that with Agenda 2030, and other terms. I mean, it's just the recycling of the same idea, what people used to call the New World Order, which I think is a kind of played out phrase, and I, it just, I think it, it triggers people in some way. But whatever you want to call it, there's really no other way to put it than these people are using COVID as an excuse to gain more control all around the world. The vaccine passport is just one step towards a biometric ID, which people have been warning about for a long time. And here we are now, and they're using the health argument as a way to bring it into people. And then eventually, this will be tied to a social credit score that will determine, based on your social behavior, oh, well, you post something bad on Facebook, your score goes down. Your score goes too low, you don't get to take a vacation anymore. We might dock some of your income. This is how things are. Now, this could take some time to get there, but this is a vision that they have. This is already happening in China. They already have what I call the technocratic state in China. They have AI and facial recognition that can recognize and find anyone in the country within less than seven minutes because of the infrastructure they built up. That social credit score I was talking about, it's called the Sesame Credit System. And in the last two years, hundreds of Chinese citizens have been denied their right to fly out of their own country because their score was too low. Your score can be higher if you pay your taxes on time, if you recycle, if you volunteer, you know, of course, for the Communist Chinese Party. If you are reading Mao's Red Book during certain hours, you get higher points. I mean, it's the whole point of social credit score, which is going to come on the back end of the vaccine passport, which is a biometric ID, is to engineer behavior from each of us. We're starting to see the beginning of this, right? And this is why we're here today. Because people are now realizing, well, okay, I'm not going to get my vaccine. You know, screw you, you do what you want. Well, what happens when your employer says you need to get that to come back to work? I'm sure there are some people in this room who are self-employed entrepreneurs. Others, hopefully, yeah, we got some in here, but not all of us, of course, and that's the problem, right? Because each of us, in different ways, us or our families or our friends or our children, are dependent on third parties for jobs. And if you have an employer, let's say for a major corporation, maybe you work in a warehouse for Amazon or, I don't know, any, any big company, any major corporation at this point is announcing, Walmart, Amazon, Google, etc. They're all announcing they're going to require their employees, right? 
So people are having to make real-world decisions now and think, what am I going to do? In France, they already have a vaccine passport, and I don't know if you guys have seen the videos going around in recent weeks. Besides, they're protesting. I'm glad they're protesting still. They're, you know, I don't think they're going to give in and give up just yet. But in the meantime, people are being denied the right to the grocery store without proof of vaccine. And that is what I, that is what I really fear and worry could eventually come. And it might take a long time to get to a place like out here where you guys are. Maybe it never will because of y'all. But I believe that the United States future that we're going into is going to be a patchwork. Like, for example, we're going on tour. We're going to be in San Francisco in a week and a half. We can't go anywhere inside that city because we're unvaccinated. We literally have to, our venues are like underground, like not literally underground, but we're, you have to like call to get the venue address. You have to make sure it's not a cop or whatever. We're having to do silly things like that because that's the reality they're already living in. You guys don't want it to come to that point here. Who's going to stop that? Everybody in this room. New York City, New York City, it's the same thing. We can't go inside anywhere we're, we're not allowed. That's all, I mean, so it's already happening, guys. It might be a patchwork, but so far, New Orleans, New York City, San Francisco, those are the major cities I know at this point. I'm sure there are other efforts. And where I'm from, Houston, Houston's, Houston's a big city, so I'm sure it won't be long. And they've got a mayor that's endorsed by Obama and part of the Rock Fund, and it's a fun thing going on here. I'm sure that it's coming our way as well. And so we're going to wrap up the this is what we're facing now because I think you guys get it. The only other things I want to add to that, and I was actually glad, my phone for this, uh, I was actually glad Tony brought this up earlier. He has something with normalcy bias on it, right? Was he selling something? I heard him say something about normalcy bias earlier. You guys familiar with this? Oh, the bands, right? Okay, so that's what, right there. Get some of those because I love that you mentioned that because that's part of my talk. So one of the things, I, I just described what we're facing, right? And before we get into the solutions, one of the warnings I want to offer you is to look out for what is known as normalcy bias. Is anybody familiar with this term? I've just been becoming more familiar with myself lately because I, I see it now and I'm like, oh my God, this is what's happening. So last year, when all this stuff started to happen, like I said, Miriam and I were like, let's fast forward our plans, let's go look for land, let's start building a community. We're working with a group of 12 people to build a community that we're calling the Conscious Agora. And... You know, things people were just hitting me up like, hey, we want to, can you help us connect to other freedom cells? Hey, we want to come down to Mexico and check out land, or just different things. People were just ready to go, right? And then it seemed like things had kind of calmed down. And so it see, I've noticed that people seem to think that it's going to go away. Like, for example, I'm in Texas, and right now, the Texas governor said vaccine passports are banned. Cool. But as I told Austin and Dallas, do not dare believe that you can depend on a politician to protect you. That that's going to, you know, that your fight is over. Okay, the governor said it's, you know, there's always loopholes. These people love to talk out both sides of the mouth. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't just rest on my laurels because of that. But I'm noticing that happen, that a lot of people were really concerned last year, and maybe some still are, but it seems like there's kind of been a sense of, like, relative ease now, especially in a place like Texas or some other places that have been fairly chill and you're not, like, locked in your homes or whatever. That is a part of what is called normalcy bias. So normalcy bias is essentially just this psychological tendency that each of us have the potential to, to experience to kind of diminish or even dismiss uh, disasters when we're facing disasters. Now, when you look up the definition of this, most of the time they talk about it in the context of like stupid people who won't leave town when they're told there's a hurricane warning, right? They're trying, no, it's going to be okay. They keep diminishing the, you know, the, the disaster until it's too late, right? But that's only one example. I mean, is there any other way to describe what we're facing than a disaster? Like, I feel like this is a disaster of, well, it's a disaster of principles. It's a, I think it's a spiritual disaster of well, everything we're facing, right? So if you think about it in those terms, 
we have to be careful not to fall into that normalcy bias because our brain wants to feel normal. We want. This is why even in the worst times under communist regime, regimes or Nazi regimes, people still went about life. It's not like people just sat around and did nothing. They still smiled. They still held birthday parties. They still lived their lives as much as they could because they learned to adapt. We do not want to adapt to this stuff. Do not allow yourself to fall into this sense of, okay, well, yeah, the masks aren't so bad. Even if you don't like the masks, we accept it, right? Because it should never be normal to go anywhere and see masks on kids. We should not allow that to become normal. So that's my first little just humble warning is just to don't let, do not allow yourself to fall into normalcy bias. I know some of you are probably been prepared for these things for years, but maybe you can help your neighbor out now. Maybe you can you know, start building your freedom cell in your community that we're going to talk about tonight. So that's one thing. The other trap I want to uh, talk about is what I call the defeatist trap. And there's a, in the Conscious Resistance trilogy, my book there, there's a chapter called the rabbit hole trap. And it's about this in general, how when you start going down the rabbit holes and asking questions, there's different kind of traps that you start to learn after you've been at this for a while. The main one I want to talk about is what I call the defeatist trap. And this is the sort of mentality that everything's screwed. There's nothing we can do. Oh, that's control. That's controlled opposition. They infiltrated that. They own that. They, you know, and just you'll notice this. You try to propose a solution to somebody, and yeah, some solutions might not be the best. But there's this mentality that I've seen in the conspiracy, patriot, truth, whatever you want to call it, community, where after a while it's like people become jaded and they just think that like. And look, we are facing some monumental stuff right now. These people, what I call the predator class. This, these families, they've been planning and working for generations, much longer than any of us have really been paying attention. So that is something to be aware of. But, as my grandmother always told me, where there is life, there is hope. As long as we're breathing, there's still hope. Yeah. We should not allow ourselves to fall into this trap that it's over. If there's nothing to do, you know, so why bother? Because Then why be alive? You know what I mean? If you're just going to give up, then just stay home and, I guess, get out of the way while the rest of us step up to play, right? So watch out for the defeatist trap. Um... And then the other thing is just the division. Guys, the division is part of the conspiracy. They want it to be vaxxed against unvaccinated. Liberal versus Democrat. Whatever, black versus white, anything you can think of. They love it. They'll play off it, they'll freaking turn it up to 100 until we all kill each other in the streets. And they wouldn't bat an eye. They love it when we fight each other. And whether that's on social media, you know, I've been trying to get better at this because a lot of my work involves being on the computer. And, you know, I get, I'll, I'll see lots of, I don't know why this is human nature. It's like all these, well, you guys are doing so great work, and there's one, like, you're an idiot. Oh, my God. That, I can't stand that. That can't sit there. I, you know, we just get sucked into these things, right? I've realized all these different ways that we're being divided, we're being separated, that is a part of the ploy. Now, look, we're not all going to agree on everything, and that's okay, or it should be okay. If you truly believe in freedom, if you believe in liberty, that means you've got to believe in other people's ability to have their own mind. And, and, and I'm, I'm here, I want to say I'm here humbly in your home, in your community to say, I know we're not going to agree on everything. And I hope that despite that, if I say something that triggers you, offends you, that you don't feel the need to walk out of the room, but instead you stop and reflect on it, and then come up to me at the table later and tell me why I pissed you off. All right? And then we'll talk about it. <laughs> Let's not break each other down, right? Because they want us to be divided. Especially the most prevalent one, as I said, is the vaccinated versus unvaccinated. We should be aware of that because these folks, with using the, their control of the media, they are going to crank up the dial, and it's going to be your fault this is still going on. Why won't you get the vaccine? I still have to wear the mask. This lockdown would have stopped if you just would have got the shot. And right now, it's, they call us mean names, right? But it's getting to the point of losing jobs. 
being cast out of society as, I mean, has anybody been called a plague rat in the last year? I sure have. I, I've been labeled these sort of, I mean, I guess it's just because I'm real vocal about it and I just can't help but talk loud. But there's, there's so much division happening and I refuse to accept that. You know, before we left Mexico this, to come on this trip, I met two people, one from Canada, one from um, the U.S., that just ended up in Mexico. They picked up their families and they said, I don't know what I'm doing really, I just, I'm trying to figure out what my next things are. So they wanted to just come meet with me and we went and had lunch. The lady from California is somebody that describes herself as a California Democrat. She's like, but I don't know what those people are anymore. I don't fit in there anymore. She's like, I used to think I was in line with that California power. She's like, but as COVID happened, I realized how I don't have much in common with these people. And so she's one of these folks you might have heard over the last year who feel politically homeless. You know, she doesn't necessarily support the Republicans per se, but she knows she doesn't fit in over here. And that's the thing is we're all more complex than they want us to believe. You know, even if you would identify as a Republican or a Democrat, I know you're more complex than just that color or that word. You're an individual, right? We all make choices and, and, and you know, we have different experiences. So I'm just saying we have to learn to put our differences aside. Some differences are beyond the pale. But a lot of things, they're not that big. It's like, okay, you know what? You you have a different diet or a different lifestyle than I do. You know, we live, we listen to different music. But, but at the end of the day, I know that I can trust you to stand up for me and to respect my freedom, to respect my free speech. Because I would fight for every single one of you in this room. I don't even need to know you to know that I would stand up for your right to be free and be, be yourself. So let's be careful without falling into that division. So normalcy bias, defeatist trap, and division. If we allow ourselves to fall into those, the technocracy, the Great Reset, Agenda 2030, will swallow us whole. And what I mean by that is these people have a vision. They've been planning for generations. If we choose to just stand still and try to be neutral on a moving train, you're going to get swept up into their vision. Because this world is that they're creating is you either, the shot's just the beginning. You know, after that it could be anything. Jump through this hoop if you still want to be a part of society. Oh, you did? Well, now your social credit score is going to go down. And I didn't mention this about the social credit score, but I should. This is how it works in China, and I expect if it ever does come to the U.S., which I believe it will, this is, you know, you guys heard Agenda 2030, right? We're in 2021. This is their decade. This is when they are trying to transform the entire world. we got nine years, and beyond, of course, but this is probably the most crucial nine years that humanity has had in quite some time. These people are putting all their cards on the table. They put it out there. They, they're telling us what they want. And they want a social credit score. They want to be a social engineer to pressure you to do what they want, to be an obedient citizen, because that's what they need to run this machine. In China, it's not just that your score will go down if you post things on social media against the government. That's definitely one way you'll get in trouble. But it's also your parents and your friends, the people who associate with you, their score will go down too. So think about that. You're somebody like me that's like a loud rebel, and you're like, I don't care, whatever, they can take my score down, I don't need their system, right? But then what happens when your parents, your siblings start saying, dude, I can't see you anymore, because if I keep hanging out with you, I'm not going to be able to go on vacation, or I'm going to lose my right, my privilege is what they become, because that's what they do in China. You, if your score goes too low, you can't access public services. They, and they've said in China's what they call yellow book, that they describe this whole system, they said they want it to be that anybody who practices anti-social anti behavior, as they describe it, will, won't be able to take a single step, won't even be able to leave their homes. And they're already doing it. I mean, so what do you think happens? People start complying because they're dependent on that system. And that's what we're here tonight to talk about, how to not be dependent on that system. Because if we just stand still 
and we don't take steps to get away from their system, what I call exit and build, we're going to get swept up in it. And you can cry and complain, but we, like I said, we can't let it get to the point where they're checking our groceries for essential items. We can't let it get to the point where they're saying you can't get inside the grocery store unless I see your stamp or card or whatever it involves. I mean, I think it's, from the research I've done, it's definitely going to become an implantable device. They're working on wearable for health and the next step up that will be implantable that they expect people to get. Who knows how long it'll take to get that, but all the technology exists. Bill Gates is funding it. All the people tied to this are in support of that. They want that. You can call it the mark of the beast, call it whatever you want. The point is it's coming. And if you don't have a proactive plan, if you're not forward thinking, you might get caught up in that. So I've said enough about the problems. Let's get to the solutions. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you so much. Alright. Okay, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you two options before we go further, because this is the key stuff. Everything I said before, if you were asleep, that's fine. Wake up now. <clears throat> you want the 30-minute version? I don't know how long I've talked already. But you want the 30-minute version or like you want the full thing? Okay, let's do it. It won't go an hour, I promise, but it'll probably be 40 minutes or so, because there's a there's a lot of concepts, but this is the stuff that matters. So, my book, How to Opt Out of Technocratic State, I'm not just here to study the book, like I said. Download it for free. I don't care if you ever pick it up. Download it for free. Print it out. Do whatever you want with it. I released it in January 30th, 2020. I wrote it at the end of 2019 because as a journalist, I've been paying attention to this stuff for a while. There have been people much smarter and more intelligent than me warning about the rise of AI, the rise of facial recognition technology. And look, I love technology. I use technology to broadcast my work. I appreciate it, right? But there are some buttons, some levers that when you press, they can't be undone. There are plenty of people warning right now that we really need to think about the world that the Elon Musk and the Jeff Bezos and the Bill Gates want to rush us into. This world of AI. Have you heard of the phrase the Internet of Things or the Internet of Humans? These are things they're working on, concepts that the World Economic Forum, the people behind the Great Reset, are pushing. So I've been aware of these concepts for, for a couple of years, and I decided, you know, I need to write a book that can focus on solutions. It's not going to be a book talking about the problems, and it will be really short and simple to the point, and that became what, what is called How to Opt Out of a Technocratic State. I had no idea about COVID, of course, like any of us. That book was published at the end of January, and then two weeks later, or about a month later, they announced COVID, and it's been my best-selling book so far. It's been translated to Spanish and French, and I think it's not because... I mean, I hope it's well-written, but I think it's because it's just extremely timely. Because now, as I said earlier, the concepts I was talking about in 2017 and 2018, particularly freedom cells and exit and build, what we're going to talk about, people like Tyler, who spoke earlier, they were ready for that. He was organizing in Salt Lake City, the Salt Lake City Hive, they called it. You know, we had different hubs popping up, but people didn't feel the need. Now, everybody sees why we need community, why we need to not be dependent on the system. It's hard to be like... Yeah, man, you know, one of these days I'll, I'll unplug. When you got 200 channels on TV, you got internet, you got AC, life seems pretty chilly. Like, what are you talking about, man? Things are fine. Like, everything, you know, I got food in the fridge, you know, what, there's no. But we need to think ahead. We need to think beyond just this present moment. One of the concepts I'm going to touch on as well is, is the seventh generation principle. So, my family is native, native to Texas, and uh, just, I'm indigenous. And. One of the principles that we're taught in our traditions is the seventh generation principle. And that, as simple as it means, it just means that we think about that generation right there, that little one right there, and who's the oldest in this room? 70s, anybody in their 70s? 80s? So, so, so someone that last group was the oldest. So from your generation to that generation, that's the terms I'm thinking, right? And when we think about seven generations, it's basically that you 
Think about the way your actions today are going to affect not only the people here, but the ones coming after us, right? Because in the most literal way that we can think of, the world that they're going to be born into is 100% dependent on what we do. If we do nothing, then the mask will be normal for kids. I have six nieces and nephews, and the, the youngest two are under two years old. They will have no memory or no idea that there used to be a world where you could just go out with your friends and go on spring break vacation without getting checking a vaccine passport at the state line. They will have no idea that there used to be a time where you didn't have to wear a mask to be around friends inside. That you didn't need to get booster shots every six months. I mean, I'm doing my best to make sure that my family would never go into that. But that's the reality, is that some, especially these young ones here, there's other young ones that if we can't at the least provide another alternative, because I think that's what it's really about. I don't think that we can stop what's happening, unfortunately. There's no way to just go, like, destroy the computers or, you know, turn their system off. They've built a freaking database in Utah that has billions and billions of, of pieces of data about everybody in the world. In the United States, it's the NSA database they've been building for years. You know, things like that are pretty difficult to get away. But I do believe we can not be dependent on their systems, and we can build something better so that when the young ones coming after us, those seven generations and beyond, they have a choice. There's this world over here. Do you want to go live in the smart cities, technocracy, you know, social credit score? Or do you want to come live over here where we're, we got community, you know, we're, we're, we're free, we're healthy, we're growing our own food, we're homeschooling kids, you know, we're, we're, we're still taking care of ourselves, and we have communities that are trading all around the world, and, and we build the counter-economy, you build the alternative networks to what they're proposing. I think that is the solution. That is what my book focuses on, is how we can navigate what's coming, because I really don't think that there is any way to stop it, short of forcing it, right? Like, I mean, I guess if you want to say, hey, we're going to take over it, we're going to get rid of the government and put ourselves in power to stop it, but then in my mind, it sounds like you just need a new tyrant. So if we believe in freedom, I think we have to lead by example and say, hey, we're going to choose to live this way, and... After a while, the people who are getting the vaccines every six months, and hopefully they're not getting injured or hurt, but after a while, that system of eating their GMO food and their vaccines and their whatever else crap and the smart cities and social credit scores, they're going to want to come join the people who are living more free. They're going to say, you guys look healthy, you're growing food, you're, you're not wearing masks. It's like, wow, I've been wearing a mask for five years. I said six more months, just six more months, it's almost over, guys. And we're going to be over there with them free, right? So that's what I'm that's what I'm here to propose. That's what we're going to focus on. The solutions that I'm offering, they are not political. They are not lawsuits. They are not campaigns. They are not legal jargon. And they're not easy. The change, the only real change that I think ever lasts, is generational. And that's why I talk about the seven generations, right? Because it starts with that older generation, those who raise their hands, and it continues on with the youngest generation and beyond, right? Because... Just as an example, my grandmother is 87. She has a farm in Kentucky. She's been growing her own food, paying her vegetables since she was a little girl, showing me all that, and huge influence to me and what I'm doing. And I know that when she comes to the end of her life, that she is going to be happy knowing that her grandson is continuing to fight. And that's what we want to do. We want to keep it alive throughout the generations because it's not going to be just one of us. Derek Bros can't do this. You know, Tony can't do this, Paul can't do this. We all have to do it together. And it can't even just be Sholo. It's got to be Phoenix, it's got to be Sedona, it's got to be Dallas and Austin. We have to build, and I believe we are building, a worldwide movement of people who are opting out of their systems and wanting to build something better. And as I said, it's not going to be easy, it's not going to be quick, but if we start laying that foundation and that groundwork now, the young ones will have another alternative, right? And to me, that's what matters the most. 
Maybe some of us feel like, well, we're not going to have that true freedom that I used to know in my lifetime. Or, you know what, I hate that I'm coming to the later stage of my life and I'm having to watch this happen. Whereas I feel like, you know what, okay, i got probably a good 50 years of life left in me. If I stay healthy, I can kick a lot of ass in that time. Let's just, you know, give it all I got. You know, just, that's, that's how I feel, right? So, I want us all to be that committed. Tonight, part of, for example, part of this Declaration of Medical Independence, which I, I'm going to let Tony explain more of this because it's, it's not something I put together. But I love the idea. This is one of the things I'm going to talk about later. This is like a physical commitment. I want everybody that's here today who feels inclined to make a commitment between you and, and God, between you and yourself, your family, that we are committing that we're not going to let that, that reality they want become our reality. Because I refuse to accept it. As I said, I refuse to accept that my nieces and nephews are going to grow up in a world where those things are normalized. And even though my brothers and my sisters are not necessarily living the same lifestyle I have and they do feel trapped, I'm working night and day to make sure they have a way out. Because I need them to know that if you want it, here's an alternative path. And that's all we can do, right? We can only offer people an opportunity. Ultimately, they got to make the choice. And that might mean that people we know and love choose to embrace this system. And that's going to be tough. How many of you know people who have been vaccinated? And maybe you had an argument about it. Maybe you lost a friend or a family member. I know people like uh, a friend of mine just like, my daughter won't talk to me because you know I won't get it. It sucks. It's not a good place to be. But that's that's just the beginning. If this progresses, some of you in this room might eventually comply as well. And I hate to say that. I want to believe that everybody here will make a commitment and not do that. Commit to making sure that you do not have to be coerced or, co- or compelled. So then what do you do, right? What do you do if you say, well, Derek, I, and I, these are things I've heard from people. I get a social security check every month. What if they start saying I got to get the vaccine you know, to get that check? I got a 401k. What if the banks say, you know, these are things that we should start thinking about. That is why I'm here to share this urgent message of think about how would you continue to take care of yourself and your family and get your food if your job or your local markets, and again, maybe not everybody in this area has to worry about it, but it could get to that point, and it will elsewhere. If you couldn't get into those places or do those things without showing proof of that. That's a reality for people already right now. I will say that there's already a huge industry of, as you guys know, fake passports and fake PCR tests. Um, I can't help anybody with that, but I heard a rumor that there are people who can. <laughs> I might know where to look. Come uh, see me after. But even that, that's a temporary solution, right? Because look, the reality is somebody's like, I haven't seen my family over a year. I don't want to take that thing. I don't want to stick it up my nose. But hey, if somebody can help me get a fake test that I can go see my grandma, I'm going to do it, right? Or somebody gets a fake CDC card because it allows them to continue working to provide for the family. It's not a perfect choice, but that's what I'm saying. This is the paper version right now. Once it goes digital, and it's that digital passport QR code on the blockchain, those things are going to be a lot harder to fake. So those people who are right now using those documents, they're going to have to come up with another solution. And that solution is either going to be, okay, get a better job, easier said than done, um, or starve. I don't think anybody wants to take that off route. Or, all right, I'm going to say my prayers and hope this vaccine doesn't hurt me when I get it because I need to work and this is my own, you know. And I don't want any of us to be in that situation. But it's going to happen if we're not forward thinking. Because just just stop for a moment and think about what, what are the ways that you can be squeezed right now? Do you have a 401k? Do you have a social security check? Do you have a job that you think eventually might require this? Is there, I've heard of people, I don't know if you guys have seen this, people on probation are even being ordered by, through the law, probation, they have to get the vaccine, mandated part of their probation, or they'll violate their probation, they'll send them back to prison. 
universities starting to mandate it. Uh, and actually, there was a lawsuit just filed by a student at Indiana University. They lost, so now the precedent has been set that they can mandate it for students as part of the requirement. And you better believe it's going to come once they approve it for the younger ones that all the kids in mainstream school are going to have to get it. And that's what I'm trying to prepare my family for. But just think about those things. If, you, if something's coming to mind, that's how they're going to squeeze you. They're going to try to compel you and coerce you using these different methods. And again, I'm not here to predict or say like I know when this is exactly going to happen. I think it's going to be a little different. We're already seeing it happen in California and New York. Those places are pretty much typically usually status and love big government, so it's not like a big surprise. Texas, Arizona, less so, right? But they've been trying to turn Texas blue for a long time, I know that. And for whatever impact that has, I'll just say that, yeah, that side does tend to support what's going on right now. So I don't think we can trust any of the politicians, but we should be wary of, of where this could go. So in... And as we're looking for solutions, we recognize that fake PCR tests, fake vaccine cards, those are just temporary solutions if they're solutions at all. They're not going to last. And as I said, the solution is generational. It's not easy. And it involves recognizing that the systems that exist today, at least for me, they don't align with my values. And when I'm, that's what I'm talking about, the food production and distribution system, the banking system, the government in general. Uh, the pharmaceutical system. You know, when I look at my relationship, or lack of, I really have lack of relationship, when I look at my relationship, what I'm supposed to have with these people, I think, well, when I work with the government, they treat me, they treat me wrong, they treat me badly. And they also coerce me, they want to use violence against me, they tell me to pay taxes or I'm going to go to prison. Like that's, I don't know that any, if somebody tried to be my friend and say, give me some money every week, or I'm going to beat you up, I wouldn't be friends with them, right? I would eventually defend myself. So I've severed that relationship, and I haven't paid taxes in 12 years. Don't tell me that. And I also haven't used the bank accounts since 2008. And for me, that is because, look, guys, they robbed you in 2008. They robbed you before that. They've been robbing us for 100 years. And again, we all have different lifestyles. Some people need a bank, or at least they feel like they need a bank. Maybe you haven't actually stopped to think what are your other options. But for me, it just felt like, how can I be out here trying to expose the corruption between the banks and the government and all that different system and then giving them my money every month. How can I know that these different banks rob the people and then bought up other banks so they can get bigger and then just keep giving them my life savings? For me, that just doesn't jive. Everybody does their own path, but I'm trying to figure out how can I live in align with my principles in the most way possible. And so I look, I take this kind of holistic look and look at all these different systems. Okay, education system. We don't have kids yet, but if we do, they're definitely not going in that system. I'm a survivor of the public school system, anyone else? And, you know, so I'm not going to endorse or support that system. And I also understand, though, that not everybody feels like they have an opportunity to homeschool. It's, it's a lot of work, right? But that's where community comes in, right? I don't believe there is such a thing as this lone wolf concept that they try to tell us there's lone wolves out there. A lot of us, probably most of us in this room, are individuals. We're proud of ourselves. We like to take care of our own selves. But we also understand the value of community, right? You wouldn't be here, I think, if you didn't understand that power of community. So the lone wolf doesn't exist because we can't get through this on our own. There's none of us that are going to make it through this, you know, one individual. It could be one family because a family is a community as well in some way. We've got tight-knit families or a collection of families. My point here is that that community offers a solution for getting out of the schooling system. That community offers an alternative for getting out of the mainstream economic system the Federal Reserve System, the banker fractional reserve stealing from your pocket every single day through inflationary policies system. And to do that, we need each other. So that's what 
that's the solutions that I talk about. It's how to get out of those systems. And COVID, I feel like COVID has shown people that in order to stay free, this might sound crazy to some of you, but you're going to have to break the law. What do I mean by that? Well, when you live in a world that is increasingly making it illegal to be free, then just being yourself is going to be an illegal act, right? And I mean that in a very real sense. Just being a free person. Like right now, liking gold, questioning governments, supporting Ron Paul, liking the Constitution, these are things that past government documents have all said should put people on watch lists, or at least you know they should be skeptical. Oh, this person's got an end of Fed sticker. Oh, this person holds gold. Maybe we should... You know, these are the silly kind of things that have put you on a list somewhere. Or at the very least made you maybe think twice about posting some things. It's because we have this ramping up of the focus on domestic extremism. And it's, I know it would be very easy to just blame that on Joe Biden, but guys, it's much bigger than that. The war on terror was always meant to be focused on us. It was just starting with the lies about 9-11 and going to the Middle East, and, and it always focused on the American people. That's what it was always about. And now, coming up on the 20th anniversary, it's pretty obvious to everybody that who are the terrorists in their eyes? The people in this room. And I hate to say that, but that's because I'm, you know, some people are like, yeah, we should embrace it. I'm like, I don't know if I want to embrace that. Because, but at the, and at the same time, forget it. Call me an extremist. I'm an extremist for freedom. I'm an extremist for individual liberty. I'm an extremist for freedom of choice, extremist for free speech. You know, I'm an extremist for growing out food. I'm an extremist to say that you should have a choice what you put in your body, you know, what these kind of things, yeah, if that makes me extreme, then fine, I'll embrace that. But my point is we should recognize that the system we're facing is making it illegal to just be a free person. And so the examples I gave of the PCR test and the vaccine passport, that itself is, that's what I'm talking about. People are technically breaking the law, but are they harming anybody? I would say no. And this is why, personally, I don't live my life according to the law. Now, obviously, I don't just go out and kill or harm people because it's wrong. But I don't need the government to tell me that. I just know that. That's between me and the Creator. You know, and I also know that I have God-given rights that allow me to live freely. And so long as I don't harm anybody else and impinge on their God-given rights, then we should be fine, right? So I don't need the law to tell me what's right or wrong. And when I, theoretically, help somebody get a, a PCR test so they can travel to see family, there's no victim involved in that. It's two free individuals saying, hey, you have something I would like? Cool, let's exchange that. We have an agreement. Done. There's no third party. There's no need to, for any individual to be involved in that. Technically, according to the state, what we just did was illegal. And one of us, or both of us, should go to prison for it. But I don't see the harm there. So that's how I live my life. That's sometimes known as the non-aggression principle. Um, just self-ownership. Again, the idea that if there is... If there's no harm between individuals, it's just voluntary consensual relationships. I feel that way whether we're trading PCR tests, tomatoes, cannabis, what have you. I think it's, if it's a consensual, voluntary relationship and exchange, then the government shouldn't be involved in that in any way. And that doesn't mean we endorse what other people do, right? We just recognize that, hey, they have the right to do that. They want to exchange that. Nobody's being coerced. Nobody's being lied to. Nobody's being harmed. So when you understand that, though, then when I, that's what I mean about breaking the law. The law is, is becoming increasingly, increasingly relevant. I think it's people are finally seeing that the law is simply the people in power's opinion enforced with guns. Because it can change on women, right? I mean, you go, that's why you go from one country to, or state and a law can be different. It's just what some tyrant decided at the time, and they got enough people to say, yeah, we'll agree to that, and then they ignored the rest of the people. That's what we call democracy. So... I just I pay too much attention to that. 
Now, so the reason I say that is because it gets into now the strategies that I want to propose. In How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State, I talk about three main paths you can take. And there are many others, but three kind of main root paths. One of them, I think, is what most of you who are here have already chosen to do. And that's what I call hold down the fort. Right? So we're facing technocracy. We see everything that's coming, extreme surveillance, facial recognition, AI, social credit scores, vaccine passports, all this stuff on the horizon. Holding down the fort means that you're in a position where you feel like you've got community, you've got family, you've got friends. For one reason or another, you're not leaving. If you're like, this is where I'm at, this is where my roots are at, I'm here to build, we're to build local community, or something like, for example, here and some of the places we visited lately, I wouldn't move if I lived there either. they got popping things going on. They're doing potlucks, they're doing farm days, you know, they're just doing all kinds of awesome stuff. So much stuff, they're doing homeschooling. I would stay there too. So that's what hold down the fort is. If you're looking at the, what's coming in the future and you're thinking strategically, the best path for me and my family is to stay here, to hold down the fort, build here locally. And I think we, you know, we need a lot of that because if everybody just ran to one location, that's probably not the best strategy. Plus, we need this everywhere. So that's holding down the fort. The second strategy is what I call exit and build, or sometimes you can reverse it and talk about building and exiting. So exiting build just means what I was describing a couple months ago. Exiting from the systems that don't align with your principles and building something better. Or supporting those who are building it. And again, this is a generational change. It's already happening though. We're already seeing people creating homeschooling networks, people creating um, networks for, uh, for healthcare, people creating so many different alternative networks out of the system. And some of it is through our website, the Freedom Cell Network and other groups and other organizations. But the idea is that if you recognize, now exit and build can be the system, but it can also be your local area. For example, if you say, I live in a community and I've been here for 10 years, 15 years, my whole life, and I've been trying to organize. Nobody wants to organize. And I tried to do events like this, nobody came. I tried to do garden days, nobody came. I tried to do a protest, nobody came. I can't find anybody on the Freedom Cell Network in my area. There's just nothing here for me. Some people really feel like that. I get emails from people who say that. And sometimes, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, hey, you might have to make a move. Like, maybe that's just not the spot for you. Maybe there is a better community for you. Maybe you got to expand your reach a little bit and go out to the next town over or something like that, right? So that's what exiting build is about. If you look at your local area and you realize there's not much hope for liberty here, or you just there's no network at the moment, you can either say, hey, I'm going to hold down the fort and be the one to build it from the ground up, but that's time intensive. It's exhausting. I mean, it can take a lot of energy and time and persistence and discouraging you know, times to persist until you finally get a group of people to come out and you start organizing. It takes a lot of effort. Sometimes you'd rather just exit and go to some other place and build. And so that's, you know, some people come to Mexico, some people come from Canada to the U.S. And people are making moves all over the world right now because they're feeling like we might be locked down soon again. We might be in a place where, like, hey, I can't even leave the state of Texas or leave the state of Arizona without... Because think about that. If California as a state initiates vaccine passports, well, then you can't go that way without showing that. And what if it happens north? You know, if you end up in a position where, like, literally your state is the only place that you can go without having to do that. I mean, I guess it's still a big state, but it's still a prison as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's still not... Even if you're never going to leave, it's like you want to know you can leave, right? You don't want to know the door's shut and locked on you. So, holding down the fort or exiting the building. And there's a third path, which nobody here has chosen, thankfully, but I felt like it was worth including in the book. And it's called, Apathy is Death, because doing nothing is going to get you killed, and it's not going to help anybody. And I don't, I don't say that just for dramatic effect. 
That's the truth. If we do nothing, as I said, those seven generations and beyond that are not here, the unborn that are coming after us, and those who have come before us who built this for us. That's the other thing to think about. I think about how I think about how hard my grandma works to to get to the point where we are now, you know, and to get to the point where she could raise a family and have and help them achieve some moderate success and live their free lives, and now she's coming to the end of her life and she's just seeing these things that her and my grandpa, who passed away a couple years ago, my grandpa just told me before he died, don't stop, keep going. You know, they, they've been awake to a lot of stuff since like the 50s, 60s. And yeah, I think about that. Again, those coming after us and those who have helped build this. We can't let the freedom that others died and fought and, and really lived their lives for just disappear. I know I won't, and I know you won't. So those are the strategies that I propose. That's not all the strategies, but that's the main thing that I'm talking about here is how to exit and build from these systems. You can exit and build even if you hold down the fort, right? You might say, well, I'm going to stay in my area, show those where I want to be, uh, you know, Snowflake, whatever your particular area is. That's where I want to hold down the fort. But while you're holding down the fort, you decide, but I don't want to use the big banks anymore, so I'm going to start moving my money to a local credit union. Or I want to start researching that old cryptocurrency thing. Or I want to put my money into silver or gold. Um, you start recognizing that, you know what, I can't depend on that grocery store, so I need to start stocking up food. Does anybody here have any food stocked up already? I figure. That's awesome. So then we need more hands, though, right? Because if you don't have all of you, then they're coming to your house for your food. <laughs> We, that, I mean, but there really is strength in numbers, right? That's the reason we build community, so that you know you have however many other people that you know, hey, Bob, Jim, Jane, whatever, everybody's got six months worth of food. We all have an alternative form of communication in case power were to go out. We all have a plan in case of emergency. And look, this doesn't mean that we're preparing for the zombie apocalypse, per se. It could be anything. I live in Texas. They just had this freak winter storm that knocked out all the power. And you better believe a lot more Texans now are thinking about, okay, we can't be dependent on that electric grid. What are we going to do? You know. But a lot of people felt that. And they realized, like, damn, this is another area that I'm dependent on. That is a big area, power. If we're dependent on their grid, is anybody totally off grid or off the electric grid? Sweet. We need a lot more. That's awesome. So these are the kind of things I'm thinking about, though, right? Because eventually it could get to a point, what if they say, just to get electricity through the company, we need proof of vaccination status. It might sound silly now, but I mean, you wouldn't have thought a year and a half ago they would say, to get to a baseball game, you got to tell them you have the vaccine or not, right? So don't doubt that it could get to that point. And I don't, even if it, this is the thing, is even if all this stuff went away, tomorrow they wake up like, hey guys, this is all a big joke, we're going back to pre-2020 times and things will be just slightly crazy. It's not going to happen, but imagine that did. To me, living this life is just better. I don't want to be dependent on other people. I want to grow my own food. I want to harvest my own energy. I want to have a well and, eat, and drink clean water. I want to have community that I can rely on, that I can you know, share and help raise kids together and, and do awesome things. Like, that's just to me sounds like a great life. Like, to me, it's not just about, like, oh, i got to run away from doomsday. It's like, thank you, COVID and all this insanity, for helping me see that there's a better way to do things. I just make that point because I feel like sometimes, you know, when I'm talking about, like, preparing stuff, like, I don't want it to come off, like, doomsday or whatever. Like, obviously, we're facing some tough things, but either way, I just think this is a better strategy. As I mentioned with my grandma, she's been doing that her whole life, and there's been a lot of demonization the last, like, 10, 20 years of 
prepping, you know, and what does prepping mean? Preparing. All, so we're in a time now, if you're prepared, it's a bad thing. I remember being a little kid, and there used to be these commercials that it's like, make sure you and your family have a plan in case of emergency of a fire and stuff like that. Like, you're supposed to plan ahead. Hey, make sure you have your hurricane kit in case, like in Texas, we get hurricanes and, you know, winter storms or whatever. Our, we would not be here if our ancestors didn't prepare for the winter, if they didn't bale hay to make sure the cows could get fed, if they didn't think ahead. But now we're at this point where not only is that demonized, but I think we've become so comfortable because we don't need to plan ahead. The, the grocery store is always there. The hardware store is always there. The internet's always there. I can flip the switch and the lights on. What is there to be prepared for? Everything's here. My needs are taken care of. But it's an illusion to think that that's going to be that way forever. And also, again, once you start recognizing... Yeah, but I'm dependent on this person, this person, this person, this person, and if they ever stop liking me or saying I said the wrong things and I can't, you know, it could realistically get to that point where we're sorry, sir, you're on an extremist list, and so we can no longer offer you service to to the power grid, you know. And you're like, cool, peace out, we got our own, you know. We don't, we won't need them. That's the whole point. I don't want us to be in a position where we need them. So, there in the book, I also talk about something called the freedom formula. And it's just a really simple way to think about what we've been talking about here. So, when I say the word freedom, what comes to mind? Feel free to shout out loud. A word, a phrase. When, I, when you think of freedom, what does that mean to you? Freedom of choice, opportunity. Ability to do what we want. Freedom of religion, responsibility. Self-determination. So we got it, right? So these are the kind of concepts that come to mind when we think of freedom. But also, think even deeper about that. What is that place you're trying to get to? You know, for me, I'll tell you what my free place looks like, what we're working towards. It's a community of like minds living together in their own homes with privacy, but also sharing the space as a community, growing our own food, living off the electric grid, harvesting our own rainwater for storing, um, having a community center that we can teach workshops and host classes and a bunch of free-range kids running around and, you know, just... Sitting, enjoying life, like being thankful to be alive. Like, that's my freedom. That's what I'm aiming for. So, I want you to, tonight, if you feel inclined, or after tonight, take what you just said, self determination, responsibility, and go even deeper with it. Just think about it as I'm talking here, because the first part of the freedom formula is understanding what does freedom look like to you, right? Because we need to have a vision of where we're aiming if we're going to get there, right? Because you, if you don't have a goal or a destination, you're never going to get there. So in my mind, this is what I'm headed. This is what every day I work, night and day, we're looking for land, we're doing everything we can to keep saving money, making sure we're not depending on these systems, I don't owe anybody any debt, I don't have any of that stuff. I'm like, all those loose ends are caught up. Because I want this vision more than anything, right? And that gets us to the second part of the equation. What are you willing to do to get that first part of the vision, right? Me, I'm willing to do anything and everything. As I said earlier about making a commitment, I have committed to myself from the moment I woke up at 23 years old to do anything I could to stop what's happening, to help other people see what's happening, and to promote solutions. Because it just felt like important from the very beginning. Like, I don't want to come up to you and tell you all these crazy things without saying it, but here's something we can do about it, you know? Give you something to, to go with and feel a little bit empowered. And I committed to doing anything to make that happen. And so... That's that's what created this tour. Everything that everything that I have is because of the creator and because of my effort to make it happen, right? Praying for it and then making it happen. And that's that's the level of commitment that we each need. That's the level of commitment that we each need. So you need to first understand what is your vision, what is that that freedom looks like to you. you know, imagine it. However old or young you are, 
What do you want to spend the rest of your life doing? What does that look like? Then add that to, well, how much work are you going to do to get that? You might have to make a lifestyle change. You might have to go to a meeting sometimes, even if you feel awkward being around other people or you don't like talking in public. You might have to learn a new skill. You might have to, imagine this, spend time around people with different opinions. You're going to have to do some, some work to get that. And if your goal is, yeah, that permaculture paradise and living with free people and homeschooling, but then what you're doing is nothing. Well, I actually haven't ever even looked up what permaculture means. And I've been wanting to research homeschooling, but I just haven't found the time. And yeah, my kids are still going to public school. And yeah, I've really been wanting to you know, get my money out of the bank, but it's just, you know, things are so busy. So the final part of the equation, your vision, what you're willing to do, equals your actual experience of freedom. So you can have this nice vision, but if you don't do anything to get it, your experience is not going to look like what you would hope. But if you're willing to commit anything you and everything you got to put this, especially those of you with kids, to say, look, I'm not letting this happen. I'm not letting my kids live in that reality. And I'm going to work my day job, and I'm going to do a little bit of extra work on the side, even though I'm going to be freaking tired all the time. But I'm going to know that the work I'm putting in is for them in the future and for the generations coming after. And if you do that and you commit yourself, then what you will get is your vision. Or at least something close to it. And I'm not saying we can create a utopia. I mean, I don't really believe in utopias. I don't think that there's ever going to be a time, maybe when we die, that on this planet things are just going to be perfect, right? But I do think that at the least we can get to a point where people respect each other's bodily autonomy, where we respect each other's individual liberty and individual self-ownership and freedom of religion and freedom of choice and all the things you guys said. That's what I want more than anything. Because it's clear that we're, getting, we're in a world now that is increasingly not concerned with those concepts and thinks, oh, it's a scary time, we should abandon all the things that got us here. Obviously, we know there are people who are manipulating the situation to make that happen. So we talked about exit and build and holding down the fort and the freedom uh, formula. I want to talk to you now about freedom cells and the counter-economic community. I'm going to explain these terms. So freedom cells is a concept that I first heard about in 2015 from a friend of mine, John Bush, an activist from Texas. And I just fell in love with the idea, and I've been promoting it for the last five or six years. We have a website, freedomcells.org, that you can sign up on. And the concept is local decentralized organizing. Organizing in groups of eight people. And there's research behind the number eight. Specifically, it's about group dynamics, and some researchers looked into what is the ideal group size for projects, right? And it seems like beyond eight, nine, maybe ten, Projects can get, you know, as they say, too many chiefs, right? Too many kind of people trying to run the show and things can get scattered. But if you have too little people, it's hard to get certain projects done. So eight is sort of like this ideal number that we aim for. And the goal would be to have everybody. So let's say, for example, who's local here to this area in Sholo? All right. So we got, there's at least eight people. There's more than eight, right? So you guys would technically be like two freedom cells. The goal would be, let's say one of you decided, hey, I'm going to start the Sholo Freedom Cell and I want to host a meeting next week. And everybody who's in Sholo comes out and you guys as a group, whether you have five, six, or eight, you know, eight is an ideal number to aim, but you don't wait till you get eight. You just start with what you got and build towards that. But the goal would be, y'all get together and say, so what are our interests? What are we going to do? Everybody says, well, we want to make sure we're storing up food. We, we, we heard that question last week. We realized that most of us are still, we got no food and we're still on the grid. So those are our first two goals. So the idea would be that your group of eight starts working on skill sharing, knowledge sharing. It can also be self-defense. 
It can also it can be educational. We had some freedom cells that are parents and they're just focused on how to raise the kids and homeschooling. But the concept is that we're organizing these local groups of eight and it's happening all over the world now. We started out in 2016. The website at the moment has over 25,000 people from around the world. For one reason or another, it's really big in India, really big in Australia, even though they're totally locked down, they're still organizing and trying to fight back. And it's growing in the US, growing in Mexico and other places. And so you start with your first cell, what we call your inner cadre, you have your group of eight, right? And I'll just tell you the freedom cell term, where does that come from? You guys remember years ago, they talked about, still I guess now, terror cells. We wanted to kind of spin that and say like, you know, we're freedom cells. We're cells of people who care about freedom. But also the way I like to think about it is, you know, when you think about what's happening in your body right now, our whole body is made up of billions and billions of cells. And each of these cells, individually, are important and valuable, doing their own little task, their own job, but they also make up the larger whole, which is us. And we like to think of all the cells like that, right? So there's a cell in Sholo, there's a cell in Houston, there's a cell in Austin, and it's just all over the place. And as it starts to grow as it has, let's say you got a Sholo cell, but then you got one in Snowflake, or it starts to get big enough where you, you, know, you got some in Phoenix, those cells can come together to do bigger projects. Maybe you are going to have a farm day on somebody's property and help them build a barn or something, or you're going to bring all the kids together and do a big event. Those cells come together and you know have a, have a good time together. They organize. But it is mainly about like goals and holding each other accountable. So there's no one centralized, no leader in the group per se. The knowledge and the power is diffused among the group. So maybe one of you is an architect. When we come to build the house, we're probably going to lean on the architect. doesn't mean he's in charge of the group, but we're going to lean on him for his leadership skills. When it's time to go can the vegetables, we're going to work with the person who has those skills the most, right? So you can share skills with your group, you can share knowledge, uh, share resources if you like, whatever. Ultimately, it's a decentralized concept, so what you make of it is going to depend on your resources, your environment, and your interests, right? Some people, like I said, are parents, so their focus is that. Others are you know, into farming and gardening, so they pretty much focus on that. And some cells do a little bit of it all. And I want to mention the defense part, because I think it is an important part. It's also the most controversial part about freedom cells. That in the times we're living in right now, especially since Biden has come into office, we've had people step away from the Freedom Cell Network and ask us to like delete their accounts off our site because people are getting scared. I would, again, don't fall into the defeatist trap that, yes, we should be aware of what these people are saying, they're calling us extremists, but hiding and letting them scare you away is not the answer. That's what they want. They want us to be afraid to associate and talk to each other, but instead we need to push harder and come together more than ever, right? So I believe, though, that one application of freedom cells could be to defend and protect each other. And I'm going to give you a couple examples of this. And again, remember, this is not what freedom cells are about, whether you like guns or self-defense or not, you could still be a part of freedom cells. But let's imagine that, I'll give a couple of examples. Let's imagine that you have a family member, a community member that doesn't take, they, they homeschool, right? And the county or the city finds out that they're unvaccinated, right? And maybe even more than that, they have a certain religion that maybe the government doesn't agree with, right? Or they um, have political beliefs the government doesn't agree with. And so one day, CPS shows up at their house to start asking them questions. Or they may even come take the kid because the state disagrees. In that case, what you would do is you call your freedom cell members. Maybe you guys are all you know a channel together, or you all you know you have some text group or whatever you choose to use, and you say, "Hey guys, red alert! Like I need the crew here." And everybody from the local area using that freedom cell comes there peacefully. Maybe they got their pistol on their side, or maybe they're just there with their loud voices to let it be known you're not taking this kid. You need to kindly leave. And we'll be we'll be on our way, you know. 
I think it will and should get to that point where freedom cells could become defensive networks. We're not here to storm the Capitol or to try to take over the government or anything like that, but we're also not here to be ran over and to let people's kids just be stripped away from them. Like, I, no, we're not doing that. And so, again, this is all theoretical, but if we build those networks, that's how we protect ourselves. Because, look, ultimately, I'm realizing that the rights that we have you know, we know they don't come from government, and they're not even from the Constitution. The Constitution just, you know, takes note of them. But they're from your God-given, your birth rights, your natural rights. But ultimately, we only have the rights that we're willing to stand up and fight for. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's just what it is. And I'm not saying that we're going to go fight and, like, you know, take... I just mean, literally, like, when somebody tries to push you around, and tell, they're basically saying, you have no rights, I can tell you what you do. But the moment you stand up and say, you can't do that, I'm not going to take it and you push back against a bully, then you, that's when you have rights. That's when you have rights. You don't have rights when you just let the government take care of you or you, oh, we got the Constitution that's going to take care of you. No, your rights come when you step up to the plate and say, I've got rights and you're not going to do anything about it. That's what we really need. We need to be willing to step up. And so I think that as we build these networks, these freedom cells, if and when it ever got to that point, these systems could serve in self-defense as well. So one thing, a freedom cell could say, hey, we want to go take a self-defense class together. Or we want to go, I saw a firing range here. We want to go to the firing range together and make sure that all of our members are sufficient, you know, proficient in the use of firearms if that's what your group is into. Again, there are some cells around different parts of the country who hate guns and they don't want to use guns. It's like, cool, well then you all go take a self-defense class together. Or don't worry about that part. It's going to be dependent on what your community wants to create. That's the beauty of decentralization. There's so many people have joined this network and I know that, again, none, we don't all agree on everything. But they're making use of it. And I can't tell you how many, like, every day I'm getting emails at this point from Turkey, from across the U.S. Thank you guys for Freedom Cell Network. We started growing food together. We pulled our kids out of school together. Oh, we pulled our money out of the bank. Like, people are doing it. People are taking real, and it just, I mean, it really, like, humbles me. just like, holy shit, this is happening. And it's beautiful. I mean, so I want you to take solace in that, guys. You are not alone. Like, we're just the third stop of the 28 City Tour. And I guarantee you, every city we go to, there are going to be people just like yourselves looking for these answers. We need to recognize how much power we really have. The media and these people want us to feel alone and isolated. And every one of you here, of course, represent more people who couldn't be here tonight or hadn't heard about the event or whatever the case may be. So there's no reason to doubt that you're alone. That's what the power of community is. And that's what Freedom Cells is all about. We build community. We, we can prepare. We can uh, educate each other. We can support each other. And I think also, on a spiritual, maybe even religious for some level, the Freedom Cells are that type of support network too because we're going to need each other guys like you know we need to like let's prep together let's get food let's learn skills together but let's also be our brother and sister's helper too you know let's uplift each other let's motivate each other we're going through some rough times right now and it's really important as well I think to have compassion back to the not falling into division have compassion think about the fact that there are people right now who have been living the last year in utter terror like some of us might know some people Unfortunately, my grandmother, my other grandmother, she fell into that. And last time we went to go see her, she wouldn't even come out the house. Like, it, it just broke my heart. You know, she just, she's, uh, it's just a difficult situation. But I know there are a lot of people dealing with that. And I try to have compassion and remember that. That, like, while we're feeling this, there's others who think that it's, you know, the end of the world in a different way. And I hope that with time, we can reach them. Because I honestly feel like the last year and a half of my life has been the best year ever. Because I see all the good stuff happening, as much as I see the bad stuff, you know, they're working on their Great Reset. We started an event called the Greater Reset, the Greater Reset Activation, because we're not just going to be swept up in their plans. We are going to build the next stage. We're not going to be 
victims of somebody else's agenda, we are going to be the creators of the next generation. And so, I'm starting to wrap up here, guys. Thank you so much for your time. The main, the last main concept I want to talk about that kind of is related to all this. I mentioned the term counter-economy and agorism, and I think that there are some people in this community who really want these ideas to take hold. So I hope that those of you listening will see how this relates to your life. So I'm going to give you the short version. If you want to learn more, you can download or buy my books or just look up the terms and you can get all into it. But agorism comes from the word agora. It's a Greek word that just means marketplace. And what happens in marketplaces? People buy and sell goods. They share ideas. They congregate. Community happens, you know? Somebody was talking earlier about a swap meet or something, and I'm sure that's a great place for community, right? Yard sales, these kinds of things. You guys have seen it. That's what the Agora is. And there was a, an activist in the 60s and 70s. He died in 2004. His name was Samuel Compton. And he recognized, much like many of us do, that the answers we're seeking weren't going to come from the political arena. And he also didn't think violence was the answer. So he started kind of looking at this problem, saying, okay, look, if we're not going to violently overthrow the government, and if real change doesn't happen through politics, then what's the other answer? Again, you have that apathy. I guess we just give up, right? He chose to sort of create, or he discovered this third path, this middle way, that he called counter-economics. And counter-economics was what he thought would get us to that agora. Because in his mind, the agora represented basically what I was describing earlier. The free place where we can all practice our own religions, we can practice free speech, we can trade together, we don't have to be enslaved by each other, you can breathe freely, you can smile, you can hug the world that most of us believe we were living in, right? That seems to have just been shattered. That's like the award he was aiming for. Now also, he wanted to evolve past government as well. I think that as humans we can and will eventually evolve past the need for government. I think it'll take some time, but that's one of my aims. So he had this vision. He's aiming for the Agora. How do we get to that place? How do we get to that you know, vision over there? Counter-economics was the strategy. So counter-economics doesn't mean against economics, it's like forget money or something like that. It simply means you have the mainstream economic system, which is what most of us have been raised in. Like if you got a check from your employer and they're taking out taxes, that's what he called the white market, the mainstream economy, right? So you have the mainstream economy, tax, regulated, tracked, all those good things. What most people live in. And he proposed that if we were to start pulling out our finances, our moral support, our spiritual support, and our energy from these systems, like I talked about exiting the building, that we could create a counter-economy, or a new economy, an informal economy. And he didn't just think about this theoretically. He found real-world examples of how this works. I'm going to give you a couple of them. Um, first, late Soviet Union in Russia, as the Soviet Union was beginning to collapse. In part, one of the reasons it did collapse is because no matter how much the Soviet Union communist tyrants tried to stop free exchange and free markets, people created black markets. They, they started trading you know, illegally. Again, the state said it's illegal, but people did anyways. Even people who worked for the government, they would you know, maybe take a bribe on the side, or they would buy foods that you're not supposed to buy, you know, or you're, not, you're only supposed to buy through the official channels. And so there was this whole, what company called counter-economy, or informal economy, or black market, gray market, that existed. And think about the power of that. Like It might not sound like much, but every time somebody makes an exchange, and the government gets none of that money, the corporations don't get any money, that means none of the wars are being funded, that means none of the violence is being funded, that means none of the 
contracts with big farm are being funded. And was, you know, we are taking away their resources. And that's what comp- it sounds so simple because it is, because you all do it all the time. Anytime you have a yard sale, garage sale, you have a neighbor mow the lawn or come, you know, help out, you're not saying, okay, well that's going to be 15, 33, and some change. You just you exchange some money, or maybe you don't even exchange anything. Maybe it's just a favor. Maybe you barter directly in exchange for goods. Every time we operate in that way, we're taking power away from those systems. And so Compton imagined, what if we created a movement of people who were consciously doing that? Not just like kind of participating, but recognizing that there's power in that. And so he was writing about this in the 60s and 70s. He published a couple books, and then he died in 2004. And a lot of the ideas he predicted have come to pass, including things like cryptocurrency and just gold and silver blowing up and getting a lot more valuable, and also that the state would get more and more aggressive. And another example of counter-economics, I mentioned Russia. Another one is from Peru in the 70s. There was a lot of turmoil going on in Peru. It seems like the communists are always involved. This one was like the Maoist communist terrorists, basically, were taking over Peru, and they were attacking anybody who didn't want to be a part of their system. So the people who rejected communism, a lot of them were indigenous people and kind of the lower classes who didn't want anything to do with it, they basically exited the cities, they went to the countryside, and they started to build like shanty towns, real kind of primitive things at first that eventually evolved into full buildings, and they had like early Ubers where they're doing like uh, bike shares, giving people rides and stuff like that, and they did this all completely untaxed, unregulated, and at its height, this was like a billion dollar market of people who are exchanging goods and living, and the government was getting none of that money. So Compton looked at these historical examples, and now I see it in the real world, Buying a PCR test or getting a vaccine passport or saying, hey, I don't want to participate in that system, that is counter-economics in action. You know? So you don't even have to know the name of the philosophy, you're probably already doing it. Because I think it's a human instinct that when the state or anybody gets more aggressive, after a while you're going to be like, okay, there's something going on, I'm going to step away, I'm going to look for a better game in town, right? But we're told the government's way is the only way, right? That's just all we've known. And that's why sometimes these concepts, I think, are difficult to grasp because there's a little bit of it there yet, but we're building it right now. We're the ones that have to build it. You know, We have the unfortunate and awesome experience of being able to build the next stage. And so counter-economics is about finding ways to get your money, your time, your energy, your financial support, all that out of their system and into new systems. And that happens on the local level. So imagine the Freedom Cell Network. Like I said, right? you got a Freedom Cell in Sholo, you got Freedom Cell in Phoenix, and some other places up here in this area. And maybe once a month, all the freedom cells get together for the big swap, right? And everybody brings whatever they're growing, whatever, you know, they bring their, their eggs from their chickens, they bring their produce, they bring whatever kind of uh, tools that they make, whatever they have to offer. And everybody comes up, they trade, they, you know, you create that local economy. That economy isn't going to be the kind of economy that says, hold on, you have to put on a mask at the end of the swap. At least I, don't, I wouldn't imagine so, right? Or it's not going to be the kind of economy that says, can you show me your vaccine status before I buy these eggs from you? You know, this is, it's going to be local in your community. And again, you guys have some of this infrastructure already, but what I'm here to say is let's tighten those bonds, right? If you see people here that you haven't met yet, we're leaving tomorrow, we're going to Sedona, and we're going all, you know, we're going to continue on. What really matters is what, we, what happens after we leave, right? The conversations and the connection that comes from each of you. I'm just here as a conduit to share this message, but really you guys get to do the fun work. And... And we're trying to do it back in Houston and elsewhere. And so this strategy is a strategy of creating parallel structures, right? Rather than trying to change the system, we just say, let's compete with them directly. Let's build something better. And what Compton predicted, and what I believe we're seeing, is that as 
we're creating and building and living healthier, these other lives, the people over here are going to see that. And it's just, it's kind of like a free market. I mean, you can make a choice. You walk into a grocery store, right? You see, like, here's all this. It's like you have a choice. You can see, here's the people over here. They look very unhealthy. They don't look happy. They can only go out during curfew hours, and they can't do this and that. And then here's people over here. Wow, they're so bright and healthy, and they're eating good, and they're doing all this. People will make the right choice. They might not make it immediately, but once they recognize, holy crap, I'm now I'm in this system. And I personally am trying to play that role of helping people exit. And so that's, that's what we're doing. The last couple of things I want to say is that, uh, again, I want to reiterate the commitment, guys, to stand by your principles. Make a commitment with yourself, not with me, with yourself, with your God, with your family, that you will do what you need to do. And again, that's up for you to determine. What you need to do to make sure that you, your family, and your loved ones do not get trapped in a situation where you have to be coerced or forced to comply with decisions and mandates that you don't want to. I would hate to know that any of you had to make that choice. Ultimately, look, I believe in freedom. You want to put on a mask, you want to get a shot, that's your choice. That's your choice. Do it if you feel inclined. But it really just would suck to see somebody who knows they don't want that, didn't plan ahead, and then compelled to do it because there's no other way around it, right? We don't want it to get to that point. And I don't think it's just going to go away. Remember what I said back at normalcy bias in the beginning? Guys, this isn't going to go away. In case anybody thought this was going to go away, there's more variants coming. There's more, you know, they could go on with that storyline as long as they like. It's not going to go away. This is a part of a bigger plan. Technocracy, what I was talking about, is a philosophy that's been around for almost 200 years. And people are worried about, it's communism, it's democracy. The real velocity that they hide in the background is technocracy. It's ruled by experts, ruled by scientific elite, using technology to control people. You can look it up. Uh, I talk about it in my book, but just look up technocracy. People like Elon Musk's grandpa were involved in the social credit party in Canada back in the late 1800s. They've been pushing this idea for a long time. Most of us never paying attention to it. But behind the scenes, this is the world they've been building. A technocratic, transhumanist world where they wanted to merge many of us with machines. And again, I know that for you guys, it's like, yeah, I'm with you. Maybe. But it might sound crazy to some of you. The, the research is there if you want to go check out my work. I'm just here to let you know what's happening. But I want you to commit to your principles. Commit to stand by your principles. Again, for me, the non-aggression principle, knowing that I'm a free, powerful individual, but it's wrong for me to enforce or impinge on somebody else's ability to be a free, powerful individual, that's important to me. The seven generations principle is important to me. Permaculture, growing food, being connected to this planet and doing it in a way that benefits all life and working together, community. These are the principles that I care about and that I'm willing to fight and strive for. You need to know what your principles are. Remember, what is that vision? What does freedom look like? What are you willing to do to get it? And that that will be your real experience. And if you commit to putting that before anything else, guys, we're going to build it and we're going to create it. And it's already happening. I encourage you guys, if you haven't joined yet, go to freedomcells.org. If you use Telegram, we have lots of Telegram cells that are organizing there as well. And, uh, yeah, I just want to say the last thing is that the reason, again, that we started with meditation, the reason I told you my story is because ultimately I do believe as much as the physical things I just talked about, pulling your money out of the bank, doing all those things are important, that it's that inner work that is just as important. So however you connect to the Creator, through prayer, church, meditation, what have you, stay with that. Keep that focus. We need to be heart-centered because we're going to face some tough times and these people want to throw us off our balance. But the more centered, the more focused and in tune with who we are, 
We're going to create beautiful, empowered communities that will not be able to be overcome. They will not force us to submit, and we're going to build something really beautiful. So I appreciate you guys' time. Thank you. I want, to end, I want to end the way that I always do. If you guys feel inclined to join me with this, this is the last little thing here. This affirmation is something that I was doing since I've been in prison, and it's just something that it's helped me get through some tough times. And affirmations, I just want to say this, they're not meant to just be some mindless, brainless mantra that you just repeat to make yourself feel better. Hear these words that I say. If they resonate with you, then repeat them. If not, that's fine. But this is something that has lifted me up through tough times. And like I said, I went through a lot of depression and pain, and I needed simple things to kind of get me through it, including I tattooed on my wrist, do not give up. And there's been a lot of days when I had to look down at that and read that just to get myself through times. And this, this affirmation was as well. So I appreciate you guys' time. If this resonates with you, please repeat after me. I am powerful. I am powerful. I think you can do a little bit of that. <laughs> I am powerful. I am powerful. I am beautiful. I am beautiful. And most of all, I am free. I am free. Thank you guys so much. <laughs> Thank you. Let's give a big round of applause to Derek and Morgan. Please. These guys, I want to come to you. They're a third stop in Charlotte. For friends that you have.